For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating today? This is the last week of summer. We're going into autumn and so many things to celebrate if you take the time to do so. I am so excited about tonight's show because someone that I think the world of is going to be on the show again tonight, and that's Luke Yankee. Before I get to Luke, I'd like to take a moment uh, to thank our sponsors tonight. First of all, Aaron Caleb of EMC Studios in New Jersey, Deborah Stone, who has a show coming up at the Laurie Beachman Theater uh, next month on uh, October 9th, and also Kurt Peterson, who has a new show on October 10th. So October's already turning out to be a very busy month. So Kurt Peters, uh, uh, well, Luke Yankee, uh, alone, he's enough to celebrate. But he has a new book out called The Art of Writing for the Theater. And he leaves no stone unturned. And he makes life very easy for those of us in this business. Want to know how, make, how easy he makes it? He even gives us a promo to start the show with. So here it is. I'm going to start with that. And then I've got a little surprise for him. Here it is. What do you love about the theater? I love the bargain we make between the audience and the theater makers. We're gonna create the world here. We want you to pretend it's real. I love theater because like, objectively speaking, it's kind of ridiculous. Whatever you're writing about, it's coming organically from something inside of you. Whether this happened in your life, maybe not, but the emotions and concerns are real. Those come from you. The thing that makes you unique, that makes you idiosyncratic, that makes you weird, that's your superpower as a writer. You know, all kinds of stories begin with one person that wants one thing. The best theater character and story are seamlessly woven together throughout the play. Ideally, it becomes more complex as it goes along. So the line is authentic to that character, but it wasn't quite what I expected. I think the audience member pricks up their ears and, and listens, becomes an active participant. You shouldn't be able to tell what came first. Lyrics first, music first. If it's done right, it should be seamless. You wouldn't know it when music came first or the lyrics first. In order to write, you have to sit down. And if you sit down and you stay down long enough, something will happen. As playwrights, I think we still believe in the power of magic because I think words can still have such an impact. They can shift and transform not only how we think, but then history in the making. There's a magic in that. So Luke is waiting in the wings, but there was a very special person who wanted to be here tonight. He couldn't be here, but he sent a very special message for you. This is from Scott Ellis. Luke, Scott Ellis. I'm, uh, I'm on set actually early in the morning uh, out in Connecticut, but I wanted to just send you a note to congratulate you on your book, uh, which you know I read and I loved. And uh, I think it's just 
so, so good, so smart. And uh, one of my biggest uh, joys I've had in the theater was to work with your mom. And then uh, an extra bonus was to get to know you. So congratulations. And uh, uh, I know it's gonna do great. People need to read it. Bye. Hello, Luke. <laughs> Hello, Richard. How wonderful. I'm so touched. I just sent an email to Scott Ellis this morning. We were corresponding yesterday and today, and I, what a beautiful way to start. Thank you so much for that lovely Well, he gift. wanted to be here tonight. I've got other surprises up my sleeve, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, we're celebrating you tonight. This is your life, Luke Yankee. Uh, <laughs> so first of all, as I always do with all of my shows, I begin by asking who or what are you celebrating besides Besides the fact that you have this incredible book out, which we're going to jump into in just a moment, and the fact that you've been on this amazing trip, oh my God, I've been living vicariously through you and your photographs on Facebook. Uh, those of you who are not uh, friends of his on Facebook, uh, well, I apologize to all of you <laughs> because these photographs are just incredible. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, in fact, it was a trip that was postponed because of the pandemic. And um, uh, so it was a, a 25th anniversary uh, trip for my husband and I. We did a, a cruise from uh, Prague to Budapest and uh, down the Danube. And it was absolutely extraordinary. So we wound up doing it for our 27th instead of our 25th. But uh, boy, so many things to celebrate, which I want to talk to you about, not only the book, but uh, my play, Marilyn Mom and Me, which hopefully we'll touch on briefly, is getting oh, yeah. a lot of attention. And um, uh, lining up book signings at the Drama Bookshop in New York and Book Soup here on the West Coast. And uh, just, you know, Richard, at the moment, I'm in one of those phases of my life where I feel like every day is a celebration. Well, my husband and I are going to Africa on an African safari with Lucy Arnaz, God willing, in February. Uh, we were scheduled to do that for my 60th birthday, and now it looks like we're going to be doing it for my 62nd birthday, which is coming up in February. Um, and it's One. just like this stop and start uh, process that we're in. Um, did you write a lot of this book during COVID, or was a lot of this written prior to COVID? What was your process in terms of writing the book? Actually, Richard, I did write a lot of it during COVID because, um, uh, as you well know, I've had a very successful career in the theater. And about seven years ago, I decided to go back and get my master's degree so that I also had the option of teaching. And once I did that, the floodgates opened. And one of my colleagues at Cal State Fullerton, where I'm currently the head of playwriting, a brilliant man of the theater named Jim Voles, who's, uh, oh gosh, he was one of the founders of the Alabama Shakespeare Company, and he's just done so many extraordinary things in the theater. Uh, he contacted me and he said that he was an editor for this series called Introductions to Theater, uh, which is uh, sponsored by uh, Methuen Drama, which is the biggest publisher, one of the biggest publishers of theater books in the world. And they're uh, under the banner of Bloomsbury Press out of London. And so he said, Luke, we've been looking for someone with exactly your skill set to create a book that is an introduction to playwriting, theater criticism, and script analysis. So uh, in addition to all of those things, because of the pandemic and because people were available, uh, I also did interviews with 18 world-class, Pulitzer Prize-winning, Tony-winning, in some cases Oscar-winning playwrights, lyricists, critics, librettists. And I, I want to talk more about those as we get going, because every one of those interviews was like a masterclass for me. It and was you just got clips of those on YouTube, and it, it's they're just. I, I mean, are you going to publish all of those uh, in? Uh, I mean, in the full form? Uh, Actually, Richard, what what I'm ultimately looking to do with those is that kind of one of the next steps is that I'm going to create an online course. And while it will be me giving some of the how-to information, then I will say, for instance, and here's Marsha Norman talking about the art of collaboration and how she collaborated on The Color Purple and things like that. So that's down the line, and I'm very excited about that as one of the next steps. 
Now, she sends her regrets tonight as well. I reached out to a few of these people. I clearly. Uh, yes. I'm impressed. <laughs> yes. And she, you know, sends her regrets um, that she was not able to be here tonight as well. Uh, but uh, you grew up in the theater. I mean, those who watch the show know that uh, normally, and I did this with you the last time, I asked for a five-year-old photograph the last time. <laughs> this time, I went a little older. And I did this because you mentioned in your book uh, a nine-year-old, your nine-year-old self going to the theater in your tux. I love this photograph. I'm going to share it with everyone. Here you are. You haven't changed. <laughs> oh God, I hope I have. No, no you haven't. <laughs> uh, maybe the hair is a little different. Uh, but uh, And then here you are with your gorgeous mom backstage, Eileen Heckard. What that was... That was actually, Richard, that was taken backstage on the opening night of Butterflies Are Free. Yes. Uh, but I wanted to ask, what are your memories of seeing, first of all, seeing your mom on stage uh, at such an early age? And able were you able to separate your mom from the actress? That's a good question. Most of the time I was, Richard. In fact, uh, she was doing so much television when I was a little boy and as she continued to, but always loved the theater first and foremost. And I think I was somewhere around seven or eight before I realized not all the kids in the neighborhood sat around and watched their moms on television on Saturday night. But um, uh, I mean, it was so thrilling being in being in my little tiny tuxedo at age 10 there, you know, uh, watching mommy, you know, on Broadway. Uh, and it happened to be a hit. <laughs> That's always nice. That is always nice. And actually, I, I have a little confession to make. That is actually uh, the, the I talk about in the book. I talk about another opening prior to that. And I couldn't find a photo from that one. Uh, it was the year before. And it was a play she did called The Mother Lover that okay. opened and closed on the same night. Well, well, was I'm glad you bring this up because in this business, uh, we are all of us, yourself included. We are on a constant emotional roller coaster. Yeah. It seems as if we are, you know, I, I think of this, this song from Pinocchio, I've Got No Strings, um, but we are constantly being pulled by the strings of agents, managers, audiences, mm -hmm. critics, uh, everyone. And thank you for putting that section in the book as well. Um, but we are constantly at the whims and uh, of so many people. This is the one I can't think of another profession that, and I think of it more of it as a calling, uh, that I can't imagine anyone wanting to go into a profession where it's almost as if we are all sparrows beating against the wind constantly uh, of any other profession where you go to school, you get a degree and you have a career and a career that takes you for the most part uh, through 25, 30 years, then you retire. And, but in this business, uh, it's the business that retires you in most instances. Um, you've experienced both the ups and downs with your mom. Uh, of, and with myself. Uh, and yourself as well. Of, if you can talk a little bit about that, um, the ups and downs of a career uh, and getting through that. And then, of course, we'll get to your book. And, you know, and also the ups and downs of writing this book uh, and the process that you went through. Um, you know, Richard, starting with the, the first part of your question about uh, the career, I mean, my parents were hoping I would not go into show business because they knew how difficult it was. They knew what a hard life it was. And um, when... I mean, I watched my mother go through lots of ups and downs. I mean, after, I believe it was four Tony nominations and countless other awards, she went through a period where she didn't work for nearly two years. And <laughs> I, I mean, it's like that famous story that, that so many people know in Hollywood before Betty Davis did Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, where she took out a full page ad in Variety saying, you know, for your consideration, Miss Daddy, Betty Davis available for em employment. I mean, that's crazy. Yes. And, and as you say, where else does that happen? 
But I did get to see what it takes. And one of the things, Richard, that I always, where I consider myself so blessed for so many reasons, but one of them is that from a very early age, I saw every aspect of this business. And, you know, I, as I talked about in my other book, Just Outside the Spotlight, I was able to sit at my mother's feet and while she would be entertaining Mary Tyler Moore and Teresa Wright and, and Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, and I learned, I sat there like a sponge and soaked it all up. And everything from how to take a good curtain call to what Liz Smith said in her column the day before from the time I was a little boy. So I, I really think that prepared me, if anything could, you know, prepare one for the ups and downs. Well, but, I love the fact that you just said that. Excuse me for interrupting, but you just mentioned the fact that you were a sponge. And that is still something that's very much a part of who you are today. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And in fact, when I was doing these interviews for the book, that was one of the things that was so fascinating for me because... I have a number of published plays myself and produced plays. And yet, you know, here I am interviewing the likes of Marsha Norman and David Henry Huang and David Lindsay Abair and uh, Octavio Solis and these incredible playwrights. And uh, I, I won't lie, I was more than a little intimidated with some of them. And what I found, Richard, with every single one of them is there was this sense of if I can do it, you can do it. And there was this sense of one of the things I asked them all about was the imposter syndrome. Uh, because there's this wonderful mm. thing that I always quote in, uh, in Tom Stoppard's The Real Thing, where it's this famous actress who's uh, going to a, uh, her first day of rehearsal, and she's talking to one of the young journeymen in the company and saying how nervous she is. And he says to her, why are you so nervous? You're, you're such a pro. And she said, every time I start rehearsal for a new play, I say to myself, this is the one where I get found out. Wow. <laughs> and I think that's such a common thing. And every one of these playwrights felt the same way. It's like that incredible story about Oprah Winfrey, whether she's interviewing, you know, Queen Elizabeth, uh, God rest her soul, or, uh, you know, all these great political leaders. And, and every one of them after the interview would say, was that all right? Was I OK? because we all want that approval and we all suffer from that imposter syndrome to one extent or another. Well, you know, going back to Marsha Norman for a moment, uh, Night Mother, um, and in your interview with her, the portion that I was able to see, and I can't wait to see the whole thing, and I can't wait to sign up for that masterclass, hopefully. Um, but uh, she talks about, we know Night Mother, but all the other plays that we don't know about yeah. that... Yeah don't get published. And that's the whole thing that we see that moment of success that a playwright has, but we don't see everything that led up to that. We don't see, uh, and you break it down so beautifully in your book, um, the, you know, exposition and, you know, contra you know, everything. Um, you talk about the imposter syndrome. When was it the most devastating for you or have you ever experienced the imposter syndrome? And how do you get through something like that? Um, you know, I, Richard, I think it's really just a matter of fake it till you make it. <laughs> I mean, just really, I mean. That's what I do every day. <laughs> I mean, frankly, you know, I, I have enough, uh, enough of an acting background that, I, you know, you just sort of sail through and, and you know, uh, I'm very fond of saying, and in fact, occasionally I even say this to my students, sometimes I feel that my degree shouldn't really be an MFA, it should be an MSU, because I make shit up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in the middle of a lecture, you sometimes with my students, I'll, <laughs> in the middle of a lecture with my students, I'll go off on a tangent, and it's just like, wow, I just made that up, and it sounded really good. So I, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. You know, it's funny, Howard Tucker was watching, he said he had never heard of imposter syndrome until he started watching my interviews. Everybody in this business knows what the imposter syndrome is. Uh, we've all experienced it. Uh, um, you, I mean, you wear so many hats so brilliantly, at Thank least you. from where I sit. Thank you. Um, 
which one of the hats do you feel that you wear the most comfortably? That's a really good question. And I feel like it changes. Um, I, I've been wearing the directing hat for a long time now. And, but I'm really sort of coming into my own as a writer and feeling much better about that hat. Um, initially, I started writing so that I would have things to direct. You know? But now I, I kind of wear both of those hats and, um, uh, and, and really enjoy them both for different reasons. But, you know, Richard, I want to back up to something you said a moment ago when you were talking about critics. And one of the things I talk about in my book about the chapter on criticism is the sense of um, when people in show business go to the theater or a concert or whatever, but for the sake of argument, I'll say the theater, with what I call a civilian, somebody who is not in the business. And it is very common, especially for a theater student or someone who is in the process of of learning, to go to a play, for instance, or musical with a civilian and just say, all right, let me tell you how bad that was. And let me tell you, and, and just sort of rip it apart and destroy it for the non-theater person. And so that's something I really discourage people from doing. Mm -hmm. I think it's so much more um, uh, genteel and, and so much more considerate. If you go to a play with someone, or as I said, a concert or whatever the venue may be, and even if you hated it, you say to the person you went with afterwards, so how did you like it? And if they say, oh, I loved it, you say, that's great. Tell me what you loved about it and then keep your mouth shut. Thank you. I had this, sto- this moment years ago where I went to the theater with, uh, with Julie Newmar and uh, it was a comedy. And Julie said to me afterwards, you didn't really laugh once, Luke. Didn't you enjoy it? I said, yes, I did. But, but I was studying it. I was studying the performance. And as you well know, when one is in it, when one is in the weeds, that's what one does. One of the things, another thing I talk about in the book is that old story about if you tell a really wonderful joke to a stand-up comic, they'll go, that's funny. That's really funny. That's right. Because they're studying it and they're figuring out what made it funny. They're figuring out the mechanics of it and they're looking at the technique, whereas a, a civilian, as I said, would just be laughing at the joke. I want to talk about you as a writer. Great. Uh, you are a great playwright. Thank you. Uh, you've written a great memoir, and you've written an academic book. But you've <laughs> made it entertaining. Thank you. In all three, do you have the same approach as a writer to all three book uh, in, uh, to all three of those areas, or differently? I, I no, I think I pretty much do have have the same approach, Richard. In that, first of all, I. Um, I tend not to think of this as an academic book. It can certainly be used as one. And yes, I'm using it in some of my classes and absolutely it, it can be used by the, uh, in that regard. But I, because of the interviews, because of the other sections of it, I, I like to think of it as, as more than that. But I try to... I try to come across... Because when one thinks textbook, one thinks dry as sawdust many times. And I try not to do isn't, that. Everybody. So it's a, it's a great, great book. Thank you. And I try to come across with this so, as if, as if I do in my classes where I'm really talking and saying, okay, let's explore this and let's take a look at, you want to know how to do this? Well, this is how I do it. And you might want to try this. So I try to come across with a very conversational tone uh, in the book. And, and I certainly did that in my memoir, just outside the spotlight. And, um, uh, and to a certain extent, I do that with my plays as well. And, uh, I spoke last time about my play, Marilyn Mom and Me, uh, which is a, a wonderful, uh, if I do say so, a very intimate, wonderfully intimate story about, um, my mother's intense friendship with Marilyn Monroe during the shooting of the film Bus Stop, where she played her best friend and how deeply that impacted my mother and ultimately how it impacted me as her son. And 
Um, I'm very proud of the fact that it's won several awards. It's starting to get a lot of attention. And as a matter of fact, for those of you are, uh, viewers who are in the New York City area, there is going to be a reading of it in Manhattan at uh, for the uh, New Works series at the uh, Emerging Artists Theater Festival on October 19th. And um, there is, uh, uh, I'd be happy to share some more information about that. No, Very I'll, limited. Uh, give me all the information. I will make sure it's all on uh, my YouTube channel. And uh, will it be the same uh, actresses that did the reading before that you did? The, uh, the, the one that we did as a benefit for the Actors uh, Fund and also the one for Broadway Cares. Yes. Did on, uh, it was a Zoom reading that I saw. Exactly. Yes, yes. It was a Zoom reading Brilliant. that was just up Brilliant. for a, a limited period of time because it was a fundraiser for uh, Broadway Cares and also for the Actors Fund. Yes. Brilliant. Uh, I have another clip that I want to share. And, Great. Uh, someone else who wanted to be here tonight who could not be here. Uh, and then, uh, and then I've, uh, we're going to do, uh, we're going to talk about a giveaway. Uh, in just a moment. Here it is. Hey, Luke. Greetings from California. Happy and lucky and I wish you great success with your terrific book. Congratulations. Uh, hope you have a great celebration with Richard. Bye. <laughs> My dear friend David Zippel, <laughs> who I also interviewed for the book, how how dear that he did that! I'm I'm so touched. <laughs> and his wonderful dog. So I'm glad that they were able to be a part of this. I'm um, amazed they sat I, still. I chose "spirit of adventure" as our phrase of the day instead of the word of the day. I was reading something, and that phrase jumped out this morning, and I thought that was the perfect phrase for you uh, because you absolutely live that. Uh, growing up in the world that you grew up in and that you still have this. Uh, I don't see you. I, you know, when you grow up as the child uh, of a star or someone in this business, uh, you can go in one of two different directions. Uh, and I have had the good fortune of knowing many uh, who have uh, gone in the other direction. Yes. But I look at you and I look also at, Lucy Arnaz, and neither one of you, there isn't one ounce of pretense with either of you. So kudos to your parents uh, in terms of something was, went right with everything. Well well, thank you. And and I I adore Lucy. I mean, we both live out in Palm Springs and uh, she's absolutely wonderful. And but, you know, I must say uh, her mother, I mean, her mother was a superstar. My mother was a Broadway character actress who sort of branched beyond that and had a great deal of success. But, you know, my mother used to say, honey, thank God I don't have Elizabeth Taylor's problems. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, she loved being able to, uh, <laughs> to go down the street and not be recognized, you know, uh, or, or somebody would say, now you remind me of, um, you know, she, and she loved that. She really loved that. She uh, uh, didn't like again, she was all about the work and as is, you know, uh, uh, Lucy Arnaz all about the work and, and not that, not to say her mother wasn't, but, um, uh, you know, again, my mother didn't have that kind of celebrity. So up in Connecticut, she used to say, honey, I'm just plain Mrs. Yankee. Well, there was nothing plain about her and she was certainly very well known up there, but, um, uh, you know, it was easier for me because, she wasn't that kind of, of, you know, superstar. Well, I pulled up another one of my uh, favorite uh, photos uh, of you and your mom uh, that is also on your Facebook page. But I love this photograph. Uh, just look, there's just so much fun in that photo here. Uh, what is the circumstance behind this photo? Uh, you know, Richard, I was in my first New York apartment and she was staying the night. Uh, I don't remember why, but uh, she was staying over and I just asked my roommate to snap a picture of the two of us. And and I actually that year I had that and you can barely see the, the cigarette in her hand, as yes. always. Yeah. And, and I framed this photo and gave it to her for Christmas that year. And I said, this is the way I always want to remember us. Wow, it's great. Um, getting back to the book, uh, when you sat down to write the book, did the book unfold as you had imagined the book would unfold? To some extent, when I, because it never occurred to me that I would write a how-to book. 
And with your theme today in the spirit of adventure, I'm one of those people who is really good at saying yes. I mean, sometimes I feel like I go fire ready aim. <laughs> I mean, I agree to do something and then I'm like, oh my God, what did I just agree to? But and I felt that way a little bit with the book, but then it's like, wait a minute, Luke, you've been teaching this stuff for a number of years now and it, it won't be that difficult. I mean, the thing that was, was tricky about it was uh, juggling it with uh, a full school schedule, you know, teaching five and six classes a term and, uh, and also writing plays and doing all the directing shows and doing all the other things that I do. But um, I'm one of those people who works really well on a deadline. And it's um, the more, again, the most exciting part were the interviews. Mm -hmm. And I reached out to, and some of the people, I've been on the board, I was on the board for the William Inge Theater Festival for a number of years. So about 20 years to be exact. And there were a number of people I knew from the Inge Festival, like Marsha Norman, like David Henry Huang, uh, you know, some of the others, that's where I first met Scott Ellis, as a matter of fact. And so uh, I, I was able to reach out to some of those people. But for instance, Ben Brantley, uh, you know, New York Times theater critic for more than 30 years. I didn't know him at all. And I just reached out to him and said, Mr. Brantley, I so admire you and your work. And would you consider? And he was like, yeah, sure. It's like, Really? And so it was, as I said, it was just a tremendous gift. And after I did one of these, every one of these hour long interviews, I was, I was high as a kite in the best oh, sense of the word. Amazing. Well, that's how I feel after every interview. Uh, it's, it's euphoric. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, uh, you know, people like Marsha Norman and and Marsha Norman in particular, who was the head of playwriting at uh, Juilliard with Christopher Durang for many, many years. And <laughs> she would say, now, write this down. Marsha says. <laughs> and, and it was wonderful. And then, of course, uh, uh, Donald Margulies, who's the head of playwriting at Yale, uh, David Lindsay Abair, who took over for Marsha at, uh, at uh, Juilliard. And just, you know, really, uh, uh, and then some people who are not so well known, but who are equally amazing. Uh, Ismail Khalidi, who oh. is the foremost um, uh, Palestinian American playwright. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Naomi Wallace, who is a brilliant writer. And oh, my goodness. Some of the things that she said were just, just extraordinary. And one of the things about Naomi that not many people know um, she is, I, I think it's safe to say she's a little better known, while she's certainly respected in theatrical circles here, she's a little better known in uh, the UK than she is here, because that's where her home base is. And part of that is because her work is extremely political. And um, uh, But one of the things about her is that um, uh, she is the only American playwright besides Tennessee Williams to have a play in the permanent repertoire of the Comédie Française. And she she's just extraordinary. And she also said, um, well, if you're going to interview me, uh, I want to get to know you. So would you send me one of your plays? Well, I was so honored. So I sent her uh, Marilyn Mom and Me. And there, there's a line early on where the character of Eileen based on my mother, she's digging through a box of pastries and she says, no bear claws. <laughs> and so Naomi's opening line after she read the play was you had me at bear claws. <laughs> That's wonderful. I was so honored and so touched. As you sit down with the interviews, did you have a list of who you wanted to go after or did that unfold as you went along? I, I did have a list. Um, a couple of people were just too darn busy, which I can certainly respect. Yes. But uh, there were very few people who turned me down. And especially it's once I got sort of the ball rolling with a few people, people were like, wow, that's you've got some really great writers there. I'd love to be in that company. Um, and so, uh, did COVID have uh, a lot to do with the accessibility of some of the writers? I think it did, Richard, because for a number of them, they their commissions and, you know, their projects had been put on hold. 
So they were more accessible. And uh, I don't know that, uh, and again, while, while they were incredibly gracious, I don't know that many of them would have been quite so easy to reach had it not been for that. So that was definitely, uh, it was a way of turning the pandemic into a win-win. How long have you been teaching? I've been teaching for five years now. And as I mentioned before, I'm the head of playwriting at Cal State Fullerton. And I also teach playwriting and musical theater at Chapman University. Uh, And just, you know, and Richard, one of the reasons that it's so important to me to teach is that coming full circle, if I may, having grown up in this theatrical household and having been given so many gifts at a very early age, I feel a tremendous responsibility to give some of that back. So that's why even before I had my degree, I would I would teach in between my directing projects or my acting projects back in the day. And um, and really, I'm, I'm glad I can now do so at the university level and in a more consistent fashion. And do you still pursue acting projects? Not really. I have a one-man show about the golden age of Broadway and Hollywood called Diva is, Dish. Yes, it's wonderful. That I still do occasionally. Uh, I do it for benefits or things like that. And in fact, uh, I was just, um, this cruise we just did, the cruise director was this lovely Scottish man. And um, uh, I, I'm sorry, he was the entertainment director. And so um, he loved my stories. And, you know, being the shy, retiring wallflower that I am, I had to grace him with a few of them so by the end of the week he was saying oh we've got to get you booked on a cruise so so i'm hoping that next summer i might be doing my one-man show on a on a lovely um a lovely european cruise somewhere well keep me posted because maybe that's a cruise that we'll take you know well i've actually done it on about 25 cruises around the world and uh but not for a while now that you know other things have come up but uh uh, it's it's lovely when uh, when I need a good getaway to, to sort of take it out and dust it off. And in fact, I'm going to be doing it in, on the West Coast at the Rancho Mirage Library uh, just outside of Palm Springs in, uh, I believe the date is February 1st. Okay. And what are, were some of the aha moments that you had with the interviews that you were able to get with this book? <clears throat> One of my favorite stories... And it's actually one of my favorite showbiz stories. I don't know that I'd call it so much of an aha moment, although it it probably is, um, the more I think about it, is that David Henry Huang, when he was starting out and was a young, struggling playwright, he had written a play called FOB, which stands for Fresh Off the Boat, uh, about uh, uh, Asian American immigrants. And so... He had a meeting with Joe Papp back when Joe Papp was just the, you know, the legendary impresario of the theater and, and, and off Broadway and all of that. So he had a meeting with Joe Papp and he said, OK, so uh, now that we've done this reading, I have some notes for you. And David sat there with his pad, feverishly taking down all of these notes. And he said, yes, yeah, so, so you go back and you work on those notes and then maybe we'll think about doing a production. So David got home and he looked at all of these notes and he thought, I don't agree with any of these. And I know he's Joe Papp, but this is just not the play I want to write. So he waited about 10 days and he sent the exact same script to Joe Papp. And Joe Joe Papp's response was, oh, it's so much better. We'll produce it now. And he hadn't altered a single comma. But I love that story on so many levels. I mean, first of all, the chutzpah of him as a a young playwright to be able to do that to someone like Joe Papp. But more than that, he had, he knew what worked and he had, he stuck to his guns and ultimately it, it worked. And, you know, needless to say, look at his track record. I mean, he's become one of the preeminent playwrights of the American theater. But that story encapsulates all of show business in a nutshell. (laughs) That tells you everything everybody needs to know about this business. And a lot of times as, as a writer, um, I am, I could almost guess uh, having not been at a table read that first table read when you have, 
I, I, you know, a friend of mine who's a, a playwright, uh, she said the other day, I mean, when you write into play uh, and you put that on paper and then you go in for that first table read and you hear the words out loud for the first time around the table. And then there's inevitably someone in that room who feels having never written a word in their life that they know better than anything you've done what is best for this piece. And sometimes based on their history, you may put a lot of trust in them and it may not necessarily be the right decision to go on. As a playwright, how do you make the decision in terms of how you move forward? Well, you know, Richard, what you say is absolutely true. And I think it, it's so difficult. And, and I think what you're talking about is something that, that many writers, many artists of all varieties learn the hard way. You know, you listen to people and sometimes it works and sometimes not. So really, one as an artist, one has to listen to one's gut. And ultimately, you know, ultimately it's your play. And um, uh, there... It, it's just, it, it really comes down to what you feel is best going to serve the work because everybody is going to give you their good opinion. And sometimes they'll be valid and sometimes they won't. And so it's, uh, it, it takes a while. That's why one of the reasons I love about that story is Dave, of David Henry Huang is that to have that sort of insight and to have that sort of strength at you know, he was about, I think, around 25 or something at the time. I mean, to have that sort of conviction and confidence at that age is just amazing because I, I have made that mistake of listening to people and going, oh, boy, that was wrong. One, another little anecdote, a little uh, off topic, but sort of coming back to it is um, my mother did a play called You Know I Can't Hear You When the Water's Running, directed by Alan Schneider. And Alan was a brilliant director. I mean, directed so many of Albie's plays originally and, and was so many of Harold, uh, of Samuel Beckett's plays. And he was one of those directors who long into the run was notorious for coming backstage and giving copious notes. And there was one night and some of the actors, just other actors just threw them away without even reading them. But my mother would always read them because for every three crappy ones, the fourth one might be brilliant. So there was one night where he said, darling, I'll bet you $5 if you punch this line twice as hard, you will double the laugh. And she thought, I know comedy and I really don't think he's right about that, but he's my director, so I'll try it. So the next night she punched the line twice as hard, nothing, crickets, a line that had been getting a really good laugh, no laugh. So his next night's notes started with, darling, I owe you $5. (laughs) I often, when I'm directing, I'll often tell that uh, story to my students and say, okay, this may be an I owe you $5 kind of note, which means let's try it. (laughs) You You never know sometimes until you do try it. But what advice do you give to playwrights uh, in today's world where everyone wants to be so politically correct, um, especially um, with, I mean, we're living in a very precarious world right now. Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, Tom Hanks apologized uh, for doing Philadelphia Mm -hmm. because as a straight man, you know, he didn't feel that it's a role that he would have taken on in today's world. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, for playwrights and actors, um, as an actor myself, I've always felt that our job as actors is to shed light on the human condition. Absolutely. And I feel that if that is taken away, um, we all w- want to be respectful, but we also, we, we're not, we're not going to go out and do a caricature like Mickey Rooney doing, uh, the Japanese character uh, in uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, right. uh, we all know that that was wrong uh, uh, in hindsight. 
but we also, there are certain, I, I don't have any qualms with a straight actor playing a gay man and vice versa um, if it's done with the respect that the character deserves. Mm-hmm. I would love to get your take on this. Wow. You know, Richard, being in the world of academia, I feel like this particular issue or issues that you're talking about, they can be a minefield. And I had an experience last semester where a couple of my students were very upset that I was teaching that misogynistic woman-hating play, A Streetcar Named Desire. And it's like, excuse me? This is, you know, I, I, oh yes, Tennessee Williams was such a woman hater. But, <clears throat> pardon me. But I look forward to the day that the pendulum begins to swing back the other way because I think we are in an era of extremism. And I am not of the belief that uh, a straight, actor can only write, play straight roles or a straight writer can only write straight roles. And, you know, as a writer and as an artist of all kinds, I observe humanity. And I, I'm one of those people, like I think many artists, who tries to know a little bit about a lot of things. And in some areas, areas a lot about a lot of things. But to be able to say, you can't, you, you can't, for instance, to say to me, I can't direct a certain play because, you know, it's like the old argument about, well, how can you play Macbeth if you haven't murdered someone? I I mean, that's kind of an extreme example, but um, it's, uh, as I said, it's a very slippery slope. And while I, I respect the fact that certain artists of, uh, and especially artists of color are now coming into their own and are now being given opportunities that they haven't been given before. I think that's absolutely wonderful. And that is as it should be, but to say that that somehow now marginalizes me as a white male, I I have a little difficulty with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, do you think that, the pendulum will swing back? Um, I, I, it usually does, you know, in one way or another. And uh, again, I mean, that's, that's not to undermine the incredible strides that we're making and the fact that that this is long overdue. But again, I, I, I the point but I want to make is I that mean, I think but isn't the theater is supposed to educate us as well. I mean, these are opportunities for us to learn from these experiences. Absolutely. And there's room for all of us at the table. Absolutely. Well, as we wind down, um, I want to, you know, I do some wind down questions. These are just some random questions that I pulled uh, just for the fun of it, uh, just to give everyone a chance to know you a little bit better. Um, And uh, this book is incredible. And congratulations. Uh, And uh, I want everybody to, uh, whether you win, uh, we're going to give away uh, one copy tonight, but that doesn't mean you can't go out and buy it. Uh, and everybody knows somebody uh, in the theater, or even if you're not in the theater, you will love reading this book. Uh, you will learn about the theater, and the interviews are phenomenal. So get the book. Um, so the first question I'm going to ask you is, what is something that you were very self-conscious about? Something I'm very self-conscious about? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Something I'm very self-conscious about. Um, nothing is leaping to mind. <laughs> I, I feel like I've done an awful lot of work on myself and might have been much more self-conscious in the past, but I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint, but nothing is really coming to mind for that one. Well, that's, that's perfectly fine. Uh, next question. Uh, which emotion do you struggle with the most and why? struggle with the most um emotion uh 
because I tend to be a very upbeat person when, and I don't know that this is entirely answering your question, but, but when someone is going through, shall we say a dark period or a tough time, I tend to want to pull up Sharon Moonstruck and go snap out of it when, when that really, rather than allowing them to have their own truth and be where they need to be. Okay. That's fine. I'll accept that. Um, how does loyalty make you feel both in your profession and in your personal life? I, I think it's very important. Uh, I, I consider myself uh, very loyal to the people in my life to, I have, I'm still in touch with many people that I've known people that I did children's theater with in the basement of the YMCA. Uh, I'm having dinner with one of those friends tomorrow night. And I think since this is a business of relationships, mm-hmm. I think loyalty is key. Absolutely. Totally. I have a calendar. Uh, Howard Tucker, who I mentioned earlier, gave me this calendar, which I appreciate. And it's called Daily Acts of Kindness. Mm-hmm. And I pulled a passage from the, uh, and it said, find and share a positive news story on social media. We're constantly looking and I mean, we talk about the negative, but I'd like you to share tonight a positive news story about, we hear negatives about things in the theater a lot. I'd like you to share something positive that you've read that's going on in the theater that you've read about recently. Something positive that I've read about, you know, um, uh, the way people, and I don't know how recent, well, no, this is recent, is that the way people have been rallying in the theater community around people with COVID. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, you know, for instance, when um, Sutton Foster was out of The Music Man uh, with COVID or uh, Hugh Jackman or, um, uh, you know, more recently, various people in uh, in Funny Girl or other shows. And one of the things I love about the theater, one of many things, is that the way people support one another and rather than people going, I paid that much money and I want my money back and and because I didn't get to see Hugh Jackman or whatever it is, people tend to be very forgiving and they tend to be, well, I hope, using that as an example, I hope Mr. Jackman gets better. And the cast, the, the cast have just been rallying around and uh, have been so incredibly supportive as we continue to go through this challenging time. And it's no secret that the theater is still just coming back. I mean, it's, it's starting to, but it's, it, it, you know, getting audiences back into the theater is, uh, is, is still a bit of a challenge. And so the fact that people are being supportive of that and supportive of their peers and, um, uh, and doing what they can to cultivate the audiences and to bring the audiences back, I think is wonderful. I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, there was the whole controversy this past year about swings and understudies and standbys. And I, and I believe everything happens for a reason. Uh, I'm very uh, optimistic in that way. And I believe that it shed a light uh, on these unsung heroes in the theater. Um, Just last week, uh, uh, an actress who just got cast in Funny Girl said, uh, did you see the posting? Uh, I'm not sure that I did. He got a call from her agent and he said, I've got some good news and some somewhat news. You can take it as good or bad. And she's okay. Lay it on me. And he said, well, the good news is you got cast in Funny Girl. You're going to be standing by for Mrs. Strakosh, Mrs. Bryce. And I can't remember the name of the other card player. Somebody will fill me in. And she said, and what's the other news? He said, you're going on tonight. (laughs) Oh, my. (laughs) And uh, he said, the good news is that you'll be sitting down playing cards for most of your scenes. So you'll have the script on the table. And he said, just get to the theater as soon as possible. And they're going to walk you through everything. And she went on that night. And uh, because four of the standbys Mm -hmm. were out of the show with COVID. But she rallied and she got there and she went on and got a huge standing ovation when they explained at the end of the show 
what had happened. So God bless them. Um, God bless them indeed. Um, you know, and this is an interesting question. Um, have you ever felt uh, at any point in your career, uh, speaking of the imposter syndrome, maybe uh, that you just want yourself with any uh, aspect of your career? That I wasn't myself. I think when I have tried, um, here's a really good example of that. Uh, I think this is a good example of that. I was doing uh, my one-man show at uh, a small theater up in Northern California, and the audience was just not responsive. And there are a lot of laughs in the show that I wasn't getting, and I just, I, I found myself getting angry. And I found myself starting to cut corners and starting to rush things that I would normally, you know, not rush, et cetera. And then afterwards, several of them came up to me and said, that was so wonderful. And just because they were a quiet audience, I misinterpreted their quietness. And so I, I, I've never done that again. And I feel like I learned an important lesson that way. Just because an audience member isn't vociferous, it doesn't, doesn't mean they're not enjoying it in their own way. Absolutely. I want to share a funny story. And Leroy Reams said that he was doing I love that. Leroy. Uh, I, I reached out to him. Also, he could not be here tonight. But uh, Leroy said that he was doing Dolly with Carol Channing. And she they were in Fort Lauderdale. And she comes back and she said, this audience just doesn't like me. And he said, Carol, he said, they're grinning from ear to ear. He said, she said, well, you can't hear a smile. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a two-part question and uh while we're, uh, you're coming up with uh, your answers for this i'm going to bring this up and again uh the spirit of adventure everybody uh and i see that no one has responded uh it's the spirit of adventure so get it in there with the uh you still have time two-part question what are you most worried about with the next generation in the theater and what are you most excited about uh, with the next generation in the theater? Um, one of the, I don't know that I would call this worry as much as I would call it concern. I think it's very important, and maybe this is partially due to my background. Uh, I think it's very important that young artists have a sense of what came before them. Um, a number of them probably wouldn't know Carol Channing who you just mentioned. They certainly wouldn't know my mother, Eileen Heckert. But um, uh, I think it's very important to have a sense of, you know, one of the examples I use in the book that I will sometimes talk about is I'll say, oh, yes, it's like a, uh, sometimes I just feel like, you know, Lucy in the candy factory. And to our generation, we absolutely know what that analogy means, but a lot of them will be like, what? So I think it's important that they have a sense of history that because, as we all know, history repeats itself. So in order, to, uh, in order to keep going and in order to, uh, to really learn from their past, um, I really encourage my students to do that. The thing that I am probably the most excited about is the, uh, the sense of enthusiasm, the sense of... Again, getting back to an earlier conversation, the way things are opening up and the way other opportunities are being created for people uh, who haven't had those opportunities before, I think is wonderful. And again, I think there is room for all of us at the table. And I'm very excited to see that continue and to see where that all goes. And this will be my last question. Uh, and again, it's another two-parter. Uh, from the moment that you began in this business and you've been uh, and you've observed this business your entire life, yes. um, the business has changed a lot. What are the changes that you have observed you absolutely love that you've seen change in the business? And what are the changes that you really miss that were once in place that you wish would come back? One of the things I talk about in the book, Richard, is the sense of the specialness of an opening night, the sense of people 
the lost art of opening night cards mm-hmm, yes. uh, and opening night gifts. And, you know, and, and I'm not talking necessarily gifts from Tiffany's. I'm talking, you know, uh, a handwritten note and a lollipop or whatever it is, but just something, because as you well know, an opening night is something special, is something sacred. And whether you've been working on this show for two weeks or two months or two years, when you reach that point and you reach that moment, it's something that needs to be acknowledged. And I think it is a rite of passage to just, you know, I if not just say break a leg, to somehow acknowledge that to your fellow actors and to your fellow cast members. Um, there are a number of times that I will give opening night notes to everyone in the cast and everyone in the crew. And if it's a musical, that can be a lot of people, if I, especially if I'm doing a, sh- a school show with a big cast. And a lot of times, very few people will even acknowledge acknowledge that gesture, uh, which frankly, I find rather shocking. Mm. And, and yet at the same time, on the reverse side, people always do have that, that love and that sense of, uh, of that moment, that aha moment of we're creating something that will never come again. And I don't think that will ever go away. And thank heavens for that. Wow. Well, the other thing that's missing, I mean, opening night, the telegrams. Yes. I mean, Carol Channing, again, who is a friend, she had scrapbooks full of all of these, all of her opening nights, the telegrams from around the world, including, may she rest in peace, the Queen of England. Yes. Wishing her a great opening night. So we're going to give away the book now. Don't go uh, anywhere for a moment. Uh, thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, one thing that I know I can speak for Luke when I say this, we don't take it lightly when you show up. So thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, Kevin Hall, thank you. for. Do you know Kevin, Luke? I do not. Luke, uh, Kevin Hall is also a brilliant writer. Uh, Kevin, I would love to have you on the show sometime. Uh, He has an an amazing memoir himself. Uh, Look him up. Please look him up. I certainly Uh, will. Because his book would make a great play. I'm telling you. Uh, He writes a great blog. He's a great songwriter. Uh, Kevin, get in touch with me, and I will put you and Luke in touch with each other, and you'll get an autographed copy of the book. Uh, Absolutely. So uh, congratulations. I'm going to take uh, this off the screen for a moment. I'm going to do this. And I want to thank you all for being here. Um, Don't go anywhere for a moment, Luke, because I'm going to give you the final word tonight, as I always do. Um, Spirit of adventure. Uh, Make that be your mantra as you go through every single day of your life. I was reading an article recently, and it said you set the tone the moment your feet hit the floor each day. Yes. And I th- and I think of that each day. I get up. I've got my morning routine. I go for a walk. And as I'm going for that walk each day, I'm thinking about the possibilities that that day holds. I was thinking about tonight and in the interview. Luke, I just think the world of you. And, and I'm hoping- you. And I'm hoping to get to the drama bookshop uh, when you're going to be there. And uh, uh, the date again is it's in my calendar. Uh, Uh, The the book signing at the drama bookshop will be on uh, Sunday, October October 23rd. 23rd. Yes. My calendar. Yes. At 4 Uh, p.m. New York time. Yes. Um, And uh, so have you been to the drama bookshop since it's reopened? You know, I haven't had the pleasure. I'm very excited. When also my dear friend, Peter Felicia, the critic extraordinaire, is going to be interviewing me that day about the book. And he's also in the book. Good for for him instead of me. But I love him. I love him nonetheless. (laughs) Good for you, Peter. I love I love both of you. Uh, So uh, but uh, anyway, everybody, thank you for being here tonight. Um, after tonight's show, please leave a comment on uh, my YouTube channel. Share this with your friends. Let other people know about this. I also end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Go to your Facebook friends list and go to the seventh name that uh, pops up and reach out with a phone call. 
not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, but a phone call. And let that person know what they mean to you. Uh, because as my dear friend Sean Moniker always says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. You never know what someone else is going through right now. And then what I'd like you all to do when you call that seventh friend is I'd like you to tell them about this book. And then I'd like you to order, if you're able to do so, two copies of this book. Keep one for yourself and then send one to the seventh friend. Uh, Kevin, since you won this book, when you get this, I would like you to do a selfie and I would like you to post it on social media and tag both Luke and myself. And we'll get this out to as many people as possible. Lovely. We'll spread it around. Uh, as Carol Channing used to say, encouraging young things to grow. It's for the next generation. Uh, so keep doing that and letting people know about this. And as I also say, if you're going to go out in that boat, make sure you bring a skipper along. <laughs> so, Luke, I'm going to leave the screen and I'm going to give you the final word. Anything that you want to say about anything that we talked about tonight that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you want to leave everyone with tonight, thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for the gifts that you've given to the world and that you are going to continue to give through this book, your other writings, your plays, and it just goes on and on and on. Thank you. And it's all yours. Thank, Thank you. you, Richard. You know, I wanted to uh, leave with um, a thought from uh, the wonderful series about Julia Child. I believe it was simply called Julia that was done on HBO with my dear friend David Hyde Pierce playing her husband. And um, David and I have known each other for a very long time. But along the lines of what you were saying about the importance of positivity, the importance of reaching out to people, uh, Richard and I are around the same age. And one of the things that since Julia Child's career started very late, one of the things that her husband said to her at that point is when most people are starting to close up shop, we're just getting going. And what would it look like if we just said yes to everything? And one day we're going to die. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we dropped dead having said yes? Wouldn't that be a life? I leave you with that. Thank you.